Well, tonight we look at Act 2, that's 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27. We return to the story of God's work in the life of Naaman the Syrian, as I said, part 2. It's a great story. It's a shocking story. It's a central event in the life of the people of God. It is grace so powerful and yet so disturbing to those that don't necessarily understand this grace that even centuries later after this event took place, as you might be reminded, the recall of this event when Jesus referred to it among his own people prompted them to attempt to murder him by throwing him off a cliff. This event is one of the central stories of the Old Testament that exposes that we are only people of God by faith. Follow along as I read, picking up at verse 15, just a reminder where we are in the context. Naaman is the commander of the opposing army, the king of Syria, and he's the commander of this army, and he has leprosy, and he has now been uh, told by a small servant girl that if he were only to go to Israel, he would find that here there would be a prophet that he could have his leprosy healed. He goes, he doubts, he is angry about it, but in the end he washes himself as Elisha has prescribed, and his leprosy has left him. And we pick it up with verse 15. Then he, that is Naaman, returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loaves of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of, excuse me, of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me, excuse me, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two chains of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? 
servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, like snow. We consider this word of God, both a word of grace and a, God, a word of judgment. <clears throat> Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us to understand this passage. Help us to understand not only what happened, but what you mean to us by giving us this word. Lord, may your spirit be upon us, give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that we might apply these words to our lives in service to you. I pray, Lord, that anything thought, spoken, done here that is not consistent with your word may pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. In one way, I think that if this biblical truth would drive a stake through the heart of the concept of claiming citizenship among God's people without true faith, wouldn't we all benefit? You know, I detest polls and articles and other things that list people as Christians regardless of their actual commitment to Christ alone for their salvation. There are a lot of people through our country's history and through the West's history and through the history of God's people who have claimed to be Christians because their parents were Christians. Or they have claimed to be Christians because culturally they're basically led to tell people they're Christians. Or because perhaps they might believe something but their life is lived no differently and so they don't really trust that those things are true. In the days of Naaman and Elisha and Gehazi and the Israelites here, we are reminded, of course, that by God's grace, uh, these are people, thank you, Roy, these are people who claim to be the people of God, some of whom are true people of God who trust in him like Elisha. Other people, the majority of them, are worshiping false gods, particularly the Baals and the Asterisks. And here in the midst of all of this, we see the shocking illustration of God's grace by calling someone completely outside the nation of Israel and exposing someone inside the nation of Israel. So here you have the contrast. Yes, a two-point sermon after the five-point sermon of last week. First of all, a new Gentile believer, this is, of course, is Naaman. And secondly, an exposed Israelite apostate. A new Gentile believer. Look at the words. Remember, this is Naaman. He was someone who evidently took the words of the little girl in his household that had been captured in a military raid and now was a slave in his household, the, perhaps the most important figure of this whole chain of events who told Naaman's wife that if he were just to go to Israel, maybe his leprosy could be cured. And here he is, despite 
all of the barriers that would take place in this man hearing and obeying the word of God, he has now in verse 14 been healed. And in verse 15 it says, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. First of all, even to be brought into the community was something amazing. If you remember earlier in the chapter when Naaman came to the house of Elisha at Elisha's behest, Elisha did not even go out and speak to him personally. He simply sent a messenger. In fact, this offended Naaman to the point that he got angry and thought it was terrible that he did not get the treatment that he thought he deserved by protocol or by his position. But now he is no longer a leper. He has been cleansed from the leprosy. And now, even by the law of God, because of his cleansing, now, of course, Elisha can be in his presence. He is brought in through this cleansing. What an illustration, isn't it? We who were once estranged because of our sin are brought through by cleansing from the blood of Christ of our sins. He is cleansed from leprosy. He is, he is, by his cleansing, he is now brought in to stand before Elisha himself, a representative of God as the office of prophet is embodied in him. And now he's able to stand before God's prophet. Now, what a turn of events. This man, an outsider, not only an outsider, but perhaps enemy number one in this context, Syria, throughout this next few chapters, we're going to see Syria as the main enemy of Israel in this time period. Naaman is the military commander. told us at the beginning of the passage in chapter 5, the Lord had given him victory, had given victory to Syria through this man, Naaman. And yet this man is now being welcomed into the community by the prophet of God, Elisha himself. He's brought into the community. But it's not just that he's been cleansed from his leprosy, is it? He's been humbled from his offended anger. Remember how he was when he realized that he was just getting a messenger. He wasn't getting Elisha himself. He got mad. How is it that he could not even stand? And not only that, but the expectations he had. Remember that from last week. The expectations were that this prophet would come out and wave his arms somehow and do some amazing, fantastic things and heal Naaman. But instead, all he said through this messenger was go wash in the River Jordan. And Naaman was exceedingly angry to the point that he didn't even want to go do what Elisha said. But his servants had convinced him to do it. But now listen to his words. Accept now a present from your servant. Naaman has changed. He's a new man. He now identifies, if you want to use that language of today, not as the great military commander of Syria, not as the person of prestige, not as the owner of the slave girl. Now he says five times in this passage, to Elisha, your servant. His attitude has changed. He now submits to Elisha's authority. He has gone, first of all, to wash himself in the Jordan, reluctantly, 
but now he has intercourse with this man and he obeys him even when he says go now he goes he has been humbled from his position and his status and his sin to become a servant of the people of God I have to say I think this particular message we could just stop here and say what does it mean for us to be a believer you see we have a reputation worldwide as Americans more and more People from other countries consider us to be those who feel that they are entitled. And that's really an apt description of many Americans, isn't it? We think that we're entitled to the best rooms in a hotel. We think that we're entitled to be respected in certain ways, even if the culture there is different and we're not following the customs. We, we think that, that whatever we deserve because of our status, our wealth, our influence, and our standing in the global community, we think that our reputation precedes us and we should be treated in such and such a way. I think many of us, if we understand this, could identify with Naaman's reluctance to consider that the Jordan River was as good as the rivers in Damascus. But proven humility is this. Not what are you going to do for me, but what can I do for you? This was the change in the person of Naaman. This is the change in the hearts and lives of God's people. No longer is it what is it going to do for me, it's what can I do for you. He was humbled, but perhaps more than anything else, this is amazing that he confessed faith in the Lord. Did you hear what he said? I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. He says there is only one God. He knows, even before Isaiah will write the words, he knows these words, that the world will know at some point there is one God and there is no other. And this is really amazing for a polytheistic person. This was a person who thought there were many gods. He comes from a culture where they worshipped many gods. There was a god in Damascus. They recognized there may be a god in Israel. There was a god in Philistia. There was a god here and a god there. In fact, they had a pantheon of gods. And they thought that perhaps they could go from one place to the other. There would be a god in all those different places. And now he's come to the realization because this was the purpose of God in this event to bring him to faith and knowing that there is only one God. It is Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Israel. And because of that, with this confession, misguided, yes, but he has a desire to repay the Lord. He wants to give something back. And you can't blame him. His life has been changed. His leprosy is gone. Now the scales on his eyes have been removed. He realizes there's only one God and he has been healed by this God. His faith is true. He's also committed. He's committed to exclusive worship. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. This is Elisha saying, I will not receive payment for this. God's grace is free. He urged him to take it, Naaman did, but Elisha refused. So Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loaves of earth 
For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. This is exclusive worship. You might ask, what on earth are these loaves of earth for? Well, they were, to understand the culture of the day, they were basically to build an altar in the place of Damascus where there were no places to worship the true God. There was no real altar that was there. Uh, there, there was no understanding that there would be a worshiping community in Damascus over there because they did not worship the true God. And by asking for these loaves of earth, he is basically saying, I will only sacrifice to the Lord in his misguided, perhaps, understanding in the polytheistic mindset of his being. He thinks that he can only worship on the land from which that God comes, but he realizes there's only one, so he must have the land of Israel, the dirt, to make this altar. He's building an altar to the Lord in his hometown. And then there's this verse 18. It seems such a puzzle. When we first look at it, we think, well, maybe this isn't total commitment. Maybe this is 90% or 80% commitment. But when we understand what he's doing here, we understand the radical change in his life and his desire for exclusive worship. Let's look at what he says. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He's requesting pardon for workplace paganism. First of all, notice this. He understands that worshiping this God, Rimmon, is sinful. He knows that if he were to do this, he must be forgiven of his sin. He recognizes that any kind of worship apart from worship in the true God of Israel, because now he has been convinced there is only one God, any other worship contains sin, and even if he were not to worship in his heart at this place, yet it was the fear of the Lord instilled in him to know that he would need God's grace. This is a sensitivity unseen in Israel. Remember the context. Elisha and Elijah both were living in a land where people were worshiping many gods. There were idols under every leafy tree, we're told in Scripture. There were idols that were even said to be those that were really the gods that brought them out of Egypt. Those in Dan. And here it was. This man, unlike the Israelites, had a problem with idolatry. This is a sensitivity unseen among the people of Israel in Elisha's day. Even the king, the king when he's confronted with a problem of how he's going to heal Naaman the commander, he has no idea what to do. It takes the words of Elisha to say, bring him to my house because God can heal him. But what about this? Does Elisha say, well, that's okay? Go ahead and bow down in the house of Rimmon? No. In fact, he doesn't even address it at all. He neither condemns it nor condones it. In fact, Naaman here isn't even necessarily addressing Elisha. He says, may the Lord pardon me in this matter. 
It is a plea to him. Elisha has no command from God to give him pardon in this area. It is sin. It is wrong. Yet God will handle these things. And so Elisha says, go in peace. And he does. Naaman, of course, now humbled. Now, of course, submitting to Elisha's authority, now confessing faith in the one true God, committed to exclusive worship. He is now a convert in this nation of Syria where, assumedly, he's going to go and he's going to be a congregation of just one household. He, the servant girl in the household, and perhaps his wife and others who now will place their faith in the Lord of Israel. So what about this story? Why is it so important in the life of Israel? Why is it here in Scripture? Why does it seem to be the central part of this section of the book of 2 Kings? Why is it so important that Jesus himself refers to it when he's talking to his fellow Israelites? Because it served as a condemnation to Israel. It was a condemnation to Israel in his monotheistic confession. In his realization that there's only one God. Remember what they're doing. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Asherah. They're worshiping this God and that God. And they're prostituting themselves to these idols. And here is someone outside of Israel who now professes to believe in the one true God. But it also serves as a condemnation to Israel and his submission to Elisha and the Lord. How many times do you see the kings of Israel representing their people and they refuse to do even what prophets tell them to do. They refuse to do what God commands them to do. And yet here, in all of his problems, in all of his problematic background, Naaman now is willing to submit to the commands of God. It also serves as a condemnation to Israel and its commitment to proper worship. How many times even David, the man after God's own heart, failed by moving the Ark of the Covenant without doing it according to the prescribed methods that God gave to move it. But here now is Naaman, who is so sensitive to worship properly the God of Israel, that even in advance of the possibility of him bowing down because of his boss in the workplace, he is asking pardon for God, from God. Christians that might still be teaching in public schools, the Christians that might be serving in the military when all the soldiers around them do not profess to believe in Christ, the Christians that are working in all kinds of workplaces where the name of God is not only not known but is blasphemed. Are we thinking of Christians in all kinds of places in which they must be sensitive not only to what goes on in their workplace and to the people around them, but to their relationship to God as they do their job on a daily basis. You see, Naaman's not looking for an excuse to commit false polytheistic worship, but he's sensitive to the sin of worshiping another god in the midst of a pagan people. If only sometimes we would say to the Lord, 
Lord, would you be gracious to me? Because I live in a pagan society, and I am so tempted at some times to believe the things that are taught that are against your word, to involve myself in the things of this pagan society, to on a day-to-day basis do the things that are against your word. Lord, forgive me of these things because I know I am prone to wander. This is what a believer thinks because he is sensitive to the God that he loves. But on the other hand, the passage does not end there, does it? Then it mentions Gehazi. You know, Gehazi is kind of an interesting character. He occurs just in three chapters in the book of 2 Kings. He occurs in chapter 4, chapter 5, and then again in chapter 8, it reminds us that, that these events described are not always chronological. The events of chapter 8 that are described with Gehazi actually occur before this section of Scripture in chapter 5. But here's what happens. Naaman the believer, the pagan from Syria, converted to the true religion of the God of Israel has now gone from the presence of Elisha. He still has all of his stuff that he brought from Syria. He still has what the king gave him, all the silver, all the gold, all the changes of clothing, the retinue of chariots and horses and donkeys. He has it all. He not only has that, but now he has health and he has a new life in the Lord. Gehazi, however, an Israelite, a servant of the true prophet of God with all the advantages, all the benefits of not only having grown up in the people of God with all the benefits of the covenant, but now here he is serving Elisha, seeing the amazing and powerful miracles that Elisha is performing by the grace of God. And he says this, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. You know, if you read the story, you understand there are commandments broken left and right, aren't there? The first one actually is the third commandment. What is the third commandment? You shall not swear. Falsely or swear by God's name, vainly. And here's what he says, I swear by God, that is, as the Lord lives, he says, I will run after him and get something from him. He is swearing by God to sin. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a vain swearing. This is rank breaking of this commandment. But it's with the intent also of rank partiality. Partiality is not one of the Ten Commandments, but certainly against the mind of God who shows no partiality. But notice how he describes it. He has spared this name in the Syrian. In other words, he was not worthy of God's grace. He's not an Israelite. He's the enemy of God's people. How dare God not, or Elisha, not... Make him pay in order to be healed. And of course, it's with the intent of personal gain, isn't it? I'm going to get something. If Elisha's not going to get something out of the deal, then I'm going to get it. He thinks perhaps that Elisha has gone too far of this Midwest or Middle Eastern uh, 
gracious hospitality in which they at first refuse things and then perhaps they might take a few things but Elisha went even further saying absolutely not as the Lord lives I will take nothing from you and Gehazi says that's not right I'm going to benefit from this myself and then of course what happens he goes on he follows Naaman and he lies he says, my master told me to come get something from you because two guys are coming and I need some clothes and I need some money. He lies repeatedly. Not only does he lie here, he also lies again. When he goes back to the house, we understand that what happens is Elisha asks him, where have you been? This was the chance to come clean, wasn't it? This was the chance to say, you know, Master, I've messed up. I went after Naaman, and I took some things for myself. I don't know what would have happened at this point. I think there would have still been punishment, still would have been judgment. But Gehazi's not interested in the truth. He lies repeatedly and bears false witness both to Naaman, the new believer, and to Elisha, his spiritual leader. And of course, we all know he's already broken the Ten Commandments. Why was he doing this? He coveted wealth. He wanted things that did not belong to him. In this case, the things of Naaman and Syria. And in this case, the things that could have gone to the Lord if the Lord so desired for it to be so. Think of this. Three commandments right off the top. The first, third, ninth, and tenth commandment. All broken. And of course, there's no consideration here of God's omnipresence, is there? Here are the telling words. Elisha says to him in verse 26, Did not my heart go when the men turned from his chariot to meet you? Elisha knew. How did he know? It wasn't because Elisha was the best boss that knew everything. He didn't have security cameras to see where Gehazi had gone. Uh, he, he didn't have the opportunity to, to use his spy network and, and get messengers to come and say, look at what Gehazi has done. No, the Lord revealed this to him. He has, was given the double spirit of Elijah after all, and this spirit of God revealed to him the truth about Gehazi. How disappointed Elisha must have been. Because he, in the bottom line of this, even though these commandments are broken, even though we see the rank partiality of this man, even though we see his desire for personal gain, so much so that he's willing to lie to cover it up, even to his own boss, yet the worst of it all is he's undermining the teaching of God's grace. Why did Elisha reject the gifts of Naaman? It's because Elisha was teaching the thing consistent through all of Scripture that we are not saved by our works or by our money or by things that we do to earn God's grace. God's grace is free. Elisha didn't require a thing. And by Naaman's or by Gehazi's actions, he was undermining that teaching of God's grace, both directly. Remember what Elisha said. By the living God, I will not take anything from you. And Gehazi went out and said, My master sent me. 
to get these things from you. He also undermined the teaching of God's grace indirectly because it contradicted the doctrine of free grace by Elisha refusing this money and clothing and the other things that Naaman was offering him. He was doing this in opposition to all the expectations of the false prophets and the false gods all around him because they required offerings and money and things to be given to their priests and their prophets for any kind of help. And here Elijah is saying, my God is not like that. He will give grace where he desires to give grace and mercy where he wants to show mercy. You see, this was apostasy. Why is it that Gehazi gets such a terrible judgment? Leprosy upon you and your descendants forever. That sounds horrible. It's because of the apostasy of grace and. You see, this is why we're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe in faith plus works to be saved. This is why we're not those of the social justice camp who say you have to do this or that in order to be saved. This is why we're not those who would say you have to do this and that to have God's grace and then earn it by doing something else. We don't pay for it. We don't do works for it. We don't even do the good things that God wants us to do in obedience to him, going to church, praying, reading the Bible. These things cannot save you. It is by grace alone that we are saved. And Elisha was teaching this to Naaman, and Gehazi was undermining that teaching to a new believer. The judgment must be swift and powerful. After all, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 1, 8 and 9. I think it's printed on your bulletin in the back. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now say, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What was Paul talking about? The gospel of grace alone and not works. Grace and a particular ministry or method. Grace and good works. Grace and reformed theology. Grace and whatever it and might be. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. What a contrast here. On the one hand, the pagan military commander of the enemy of God's people becomes a true believer in God, even to the extent that Jesus himself says in Luke that this man will rise up and condemn the generation that saw Jesus because Naaman became a believer and they rejected him. While an Israelite, a servant of one of God's most known true prophets, Powerful, miraculous things done in his presence is exposed as someone without faith. You see, this is not only a warning to Israel, but to us. Not only a warning to Israel in Elisha's day, but a warning to the church. Are you the Naaman? Brought in from outside. 
who has believed the word of God and now his life has changed, his attitude has changed, his commitment has changed. Now he realizes there's only one true God or are you the Christian who grew up in a Christian home or come to Christian churches or Christian meetings and the things of God are really not that important to you, you will in the end, like a hazy, be exposed. And judgment will come. God's grace is powerful and amazing and mighty. But God's judgment is swift and will bring all those outside to an end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this story, so powerful, this demonstration of grace, so fearful in your pronouncement of judgment. Lord, let us not rely upon our background, our bloodlines, our heritage, our works, or anything else. Lord, help us to trust in Christ alone, by your grace alone, through faith alone because of the word, the scripture, that by your spirit changes us. We pray in Jesus' name.